Well, we've been spending some time in the book of Job. It's a very mysterious, uh, very skipped over book because it has a lot of hard things for us to really wrap our, try to wrap our minds and our hearts around about the mysteriousness, the sovereignty of God and who he is and his character. Um, so we, we ha- it's, been, it's been a joy to preach it, uh, but I'll tell you this much, it's been hard to, to study and to, to prepare my heart and to humble myself and just be dependent on the Spirit. So if you take time to pray for me as your pastor, take time that the Spirit would, would enlighten for me the Word of God and help me see what I need to see. In his fiction series, The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes in the, in the one specific story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, about three children who find themselves in a land called Narnia. In this land, the white witch has evil powers and is turning people into stone. The three children find themselves on an adventure through the land after one of them is enticed and captured by the white witch and the journey to rescue him begins. At one point in the story, they find themselves in the house of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Now, don't don't forget, this is a fictional children's story, okay? So these are real beavers that the children are in their home. In their conversation with the Beaver family, they begin to tell the children about Aslan, who is the king of Narnia. And they describe him, the the Beaver family describes Aslan. They describe a a ferocious lion who rules and reigns with absolute authority in the land of Narnia. They begin to ask about Aslan, who is the Christ figure in this story. And one of them, one of the children asks, well, is he safe? And this is what Mr. Beaver says. He says, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. So as Bildad, one of Job's friends, quote unquote comforters, gives unsolicited advice to the, to the suffering Job, you begin to see that his response is a lot like Eliphaz's in chapters four and five. This is what we call retribution theology, and this is a reminder what retribution theology is. Do good and God gives you good stuff. Do bad and God gives you bad stuff. That's what retribution theology is, which we reject wholeheartedly here at Redeemer. But as we listen to Bildad, Bildad, uh, as we listen to Bildad's comfort, he seems a lot more pointed and harsh. Eliphaz speaks a little softer, and he wraps his harsh words in, in, in these soft blankets, as you would say. But Bildad, he rips off the Band-Aid, rubs dirt on the wound, and he tells Job to just suck it up. That's basically what, Bild, what Bildad is saying this morning. So as we think about Bildad's answer to Job today, I wanted to use C.S. Lewis's line from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to remind us that we serve a good and gracious king, but again, he cannot be domesticated. He cannot be stuffed into a box. He cannot be given limits like us, and he cannot be made into our image. God, look at me for just a moment, God is not safe. He is not safe, but he is good and he is king. What do I mean by him not being safe? Safe is he does not behave the, one, the way you want him to behave. So we will see in chapter 8 how Bildad thinks he needs to defend God from what Job is saying. 
Though Job never curses God or accuses him of any injustice, no one needs to defend a good God, for all his ways are good, and he is the very definition of good. Let me say that again. God is good, and he is the very definition of good. So when you say something is good, you are saying it is as good as God, okay? So be careful when you say that you are a good person, because you are saying you are as good as God. And that cannot be true unless you are in Christ. So, though, though we will not cover any more of Bildad's discourses, this is the only one we're going to cover in chapter 8. This is the very thesis, this is the, the, this is the main point of what Bildad is saying. God needs my help to make you repent, Job. God needs my help for me to come and, and point out this secret sin that you might have that God is holding against you to cause all of this suffering. And just a reminder, Job is under an immense amount of suffering. He is a righteous man seen with God's favor on him. He is a wise man. And then all of this suffering comes at the hands of Satan because God allows it. If you read it in, in chapters 1 and 2. He loses all of his livestock, he loses most of his servants, and all of his ten children are killed. And his wife even turns against him. And now his friends come, and, and he has boils all over his body. Don't forget about that. He's sick, he's got boils all over his body. He's outside the city, meaning that the city has rejected him as one of the leaders of the city. And he scrapes himself with broken pottery because he cannot find relief from this sickness. And Bildad comes and says, surely you have some kind of sin that you need to repent of, and you will not repent, so I'm going to continue to twist your arm until you repent of this sin. In one of John Calvin's 159 sermons on Job, he was quoted as saying, Job's friends had a bad case, and they argue it very well. Job has a very good case but argues it very badly. That's the way John Calvin kind of condensed all of these, these conversations that take place. So we need to take time and remember that this is somewhat of a courtroom setting, or this is the picture that the author of Job wants us to have. Job is the defendant sitting on one side. Satan, Job's wife, and his three friends are the plaintiffs bringing the case against Job. To make Bildad's case against Job simple, Christopher Ash says this, and this is a commentary I was reading this week. He uses four points. Bildad uses four points, okay? If you're a note taker, you want to you note this. Number one, God is in absolute control. Th that means God is sovereign, okay? God reigns supreme over all things. That's Bildad's first point in chapter eight. The second is, God is absolutely just and fair, okay? Now, take a step back and think, is there anything wrong with those two points? No. God is sovereign and He's just. Those two things. Those are the first two points. Now here come the, the second point, three and four. Therefore, if, he, if it's true about God, these two things, He always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness. If God is in absolute control and He's absolutely just, then because of these two things, it informs the fact that He always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness. And then the last thing is, 
Therefore, if I suffer, I must have sinned, and, and I'm being punished justly for my sin. And on the flip side of that is, if I'm not sinning, then I have, then I'm in, like, I, I receive good things from God. That is retribution theology at, at the very heart of what it means. So he, he builds his point on these first two points saying God is in absolute control, he's absolutely just and fair, and because of these two things, this is what, in, this is what it informs. If you are in sin, then God is going to punish you. There are hints of truth to that, but that is not always true about the character of God, and we're going to see why in just a moment. And, and let, me, let me say this, this is a false gospel that Bildad is preaching. This is a false gospel. I, I said this a few weeks, a few weeks ago, a half gospel, a half true gospel is a whole heresy. So a, a half truth about God is, is a whole lie about God. And because God is not safe, he, does, he, he doesn't take those things lightly. If you could remember anything, church, when you, when you come into this place, is to remember that you're, you're, you're not dealing with someone who, who is like you. You are dealing with a holy and infinite God who takes sin very seriously, so seriously that He sent His Son wrapped in flesh and crushed Him on a cross. And He takes it so seriously that after that, that those who are not hidden in Christ, those who, who, who have not confessed Him as Savior will one day have to pay under the wrath of God. That's what the Bible says, so if the Bible says it, I have to say it, because I will be held accountable one day before a holy God. So remember, when you come into this place to worship, that we are worshiping a holy and righteous and just and fair King who is not like us. It is important to remember that. So I want to ask this question, if this is true what Bildad is saying, if he always punishes wickedness, why did he not kill Adam and Eve in the garden. Did he punish them in a sense? Yes. He cast them out of the garden. He cast them away from his presence. But why did he not smite them in that moment when they disobeyed against him? If he always punishes wickedness. And if, if the, the fourth point is true, if I must suffer when I sin, always, isn't the death of Jesus in vain? If, if Jesus paid for all of my sin, and, and think about this for just a moment. Jesus died over 2,000 years ago, so all of your sin was future sin. You hadn't committed any of your sins or any, any of the sins that you're committing now. So if, if that's true, if I must always suffer for my sin, then the death of Jesus on the cross is in vain. It doesn't make sense. Because all of our sin was future sin that needed to be forgiven. Are you making the connection here? That, that's why we have to walk away from a false gospel like this. This is why we need the justification of God. We need to stand before Him righteous because anything we do or say that's good, we cannot bring it to God and say, God, look at all this good stuff that I've done. 
because you are trying to justify yourself. For those of you with, with kids in this place, how many of them have come and said, well, well, what about these things? And they try to justify themselves when they know they're in trouble. The only thing, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. The only thing you and I have to offer God is the sin that needs to be forgiven. That's the only thing we bring to the table. We need to be justified. Look, if you would, in the New Testament, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Listen to the language Paul uses here. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. It might sound familiar to you. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a, what? Something you earned? As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now, that word is just a big word saying that Jesus took God's wrath on himself in your place. That's what propitiation means. By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That does not mean he winks at sin. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You hear all that language Paul is using about justification? The justification that you receive at the moment you are saved by God himself, God does the saving, is a gift to you. Look at me, church, for just a moment. Any other religion, any other religion, Buddhism, Catholicism, anything else says work and work and work and do better and try harder until you can make it into the presence of God. According to Ephesians chapter 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins and we need to be made alive in Christ Jesus. Christianity is the only one that offers that the God-man, Jesus, the Son of God, comes down in the flesh and he offers himself as a sacrifice in the place of sinners, rebels who hated him. He's the only, this Christianity is the only one. Do the research. Christianity is the only one that says you cannot be good enough for God. God comes and, is, and lives a perfect life in the life of Jesus in your place and in mine. I'm fired up today because <laughs> that is the very essence of the good news of the gospel. So let's get to chapter 8 because I'm going to keep preaching and we're going to be here for an hour, okay? Chapter 8, like a sharp-tongued prosecutor, Bildad walks into the courtroom with a briefcase in hand. This is just imagery for you. He gets to his place in front of the judge, who is God, and he points at Job and he says, guilty. This man is guilty. Okay, so before we, we even get to, to verse 1, there are three prongs here, that three points here that Bildad uses, okay? is logic, tradition, and nature. And listen, when we read a few of these verses, listen to these. He, he wants to use logic or, or, or reason. He wants to look back and say, well, these are the way things used to be, so that's what needs to inform your position, Job. And then nature, he says, well, what is nature telling you, Job, about the very character and nature of God. Let's look at Job chapter 8. Job chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says, Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Here's what 
Bildad is saying in that one verse. He says, you're full of hot air. Have you ever heard someone say that? Oh, you're just, you're just full of hot air. That's what Bildad is saying to Job. Now, go back to chapter 6, verse 26. Listen to Job's words here. Chapter 6, verse 26, 26 says, do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Job says it before Bildad even says it. He says, this is what you're saying about me. You're saying that anything that I say is meaningless, that it carries no weight. And then Bildad comes in in chapter 8 and says, what you're saying is like a great wind. It carries no weight. You see how these connections are being made here? And then look at verse 3. Bildad says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? That's very true. That is a very true thing that Bildad is saying here. And listen to me, if, if any of you have a broken clock in your house that you never fix or put batteries in for some reason, guess what? That clock is right twice a day. So Bildad is right a couple of times. We can read words in here and Bildad is right, just like that broken clock. But all the other times, he's, he's way off the mark here, okay? Look at verse 4. And listen to this cheap shot by Bildad. Listen to this cheap shot. He says, if your children have sinned against him, being God, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Now think, if, if you were to, to have dinner or go to someone's house that had just lost a child to death, they died. And you came in and said, well, they probably got what they deserved. Do you think they, you would be friends with that person any longer? You probably wouldn't be in their house at that moment. I mean, you live in Texas, they'd probably get a gun out and shoot you. That is, you see how insensitive his words are from the very beginning? Bildad is saying, your, your kids probably sinned, so God punished them. So all that atoning sacrifices that you did for your kids, kind of meaningless, Job. That is, that's a left hook from someone who's already disoriented. That's a cheap shot to Job. That is an absolute cheap shot to Job. Look at verses five through seven. It says, if you will seek God, if you will, you see that language? If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And through your beginning, though your beginning was small, excuse me, your latter days will be very great. That is retribution theology. He's saying, if you will do these things, if you'll just confess enough sin, Job, if you'll just have enough faith, has anyone ever said that to you? If you'll just have enough faith, if you'll just have enough faith for, to believe, if you'll just conjure it up somewhere and believe, God will give you these things. I'm giving you permission as, as the pastor at Redeemer to look at that person the next time they say that and say, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does not say that. The Bible says that faith has to be given to me as a gift. It is not something I can conjure up. But see how Bildad is using these words here. He's saying, if you'll just do these things, then maybe God will rouse himself from sleep and be like, okay, Job, I'll give it back to you. You've you've been good enough now, Job. I'll give it back to you. Look at verses 8 through 10. 
For inquire, please, of bygone ages. He's he's appealing to tradition here. For verse 9, for we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Bildad's saying here, he's saying, look to the, look to the past, look to, to, to tradition, excuse me, and it'll inform you about what you need to do. There's a lot of, there's, I want to say this as, as sensitively as I can. There's a lot of churches now who are so steeped in tradition and the way they've always done things for the last hundred years that they just can't, they can't come out of that. And then when someone sins or when, when someone, someone's suffering greatly, they look back tra- to tradition instead of this, instead of to the Word of God, which is our greatest tradition. This is our greatest tradition as the people of God that we can look to His Word and see that He speaks. You see, church, we don't need to go find some other revelation of God. We don't need Him to say, well, God, I just need you to speak to me. Because we can come here and He's always speaking. God is always speaking when we open up His Word and read it. Verses 11 through 19. I'm not going to read all of these, but I want you to see that He's appealing to nature here. It says, can, can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower, while yet in flower and do not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hopeless of the godless shall perish. You see, he's, he's appealing to nature now. He appealed to logic, he appealed tra- to tradition, and he's appealing now to nature. Look what nature's telling you to do, Job. It's telling you to repent of your sin. It's telling you not to put your hope in these things, but you need to repent of your sin, Job. It sounds true. On the very surface, it sounds true. Now look at the last three verses, the ones Rusty read for us this morning. It says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. This is what Bildad's saying. If you do all these things, then, then this is what's going to happen. And it, so- it sounds good. It sounds true. It just do all these things. Just appeal to logic. Just appeal to tradition. Just appeal to nature, Job, and you're going to get these good things from God. That is retribution theology. That's very hard. So last week, and you can go back and listen to last week's sermon online, last week I spent some time talking about different rhythms that the Bible has embedded from the very beginning. Just right here in this chapter is another rhythm in this book that Job's comforters are helping us see. They want Job to come clean of his secret sin, and they will constantly berate him until he submits to what they say. So I wanted to ask the question, why do we need so many speeches from Job's comforters? And listen, chapter 4 all the way to chapter 37 are are speeches between these friends and Job. That's a lot of chapters on these conversations. We're not going to cover all those, but there's a lot of conversations happening here. So here's just just to paint this picture for you. 
Just like a legal prosecution team comes prepared to court to drown the defense with overwhelming evidence, so do Job's friends come to do the same to Job. They are continually pointing the finger at Job and offering him, quote unquote, friendly advice on why they think if he would just repent, God would ease up on Job. That's why we have so many conversations. So let me ask a few questions as we, as we wind down our time here. Are we sinners? Yes. Do we still sin because we are sinners? Yes. Do we still need to repent to walk away from that sin? Yes. Does God punish sin? Yes. Does God punish sinners who are in Christ for their sin? No. Look at Romans chapter eight, verse one. And I hope that this would be one that you would have underlined, highlighted, circled. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? Good enough? Those who have worked hard enough? Those who have done all the right things? Those who have gone to church their whole lives? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are hidden in Christ, who are in Christ Jesus and will never be separated from him. No condemnation. That means it would be against God's character for him to look down and condemn you as a child of God. If you are saved by him, if you are in Christ, it would be against his character for him to condemn you. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved for having to be punished for our sins for eternity. That's the truth about this. Martin Luther had this, this idea that we are simultaneously sinners and simultaneously saints at the same time. We still sin because at the very heart of us, of who we are, is still sin deeply embedded in our hearts. So that's why we sin. We are sinners by nature. And when we are in Christ, we are simultaneously sinners and saints. That's how we operate in this in-between moment. Until Christ comes to collect his church one day, when he splits that eastern sky and he comes to collect his church, we will no longer be simultaneously saints and sinners. We will be saints forever because we will be sanctified and glorified in the presence of God. So if I, could, if I could simplify all of Job's story, all of these 42 chapters into just a few phrases, I would say this. Job's story is what we all deserve. We all deserve to suffer like Job. All of what we have, listen church, all of what we have is of the sheer grace of God. I say this, I don't know how often I say this, but I say it often. The very breath that you're breathing right now and you don't even know you're breathing it, of the very gift of the grace of God. The synapses going off in your brain to help you think and to listen, the blood coursing through your vein, your heart pumping as many times as it needs to, all a gift from God. And this is for the unbeliever and the believer both. It is all the sheer magnitude of the grace of God that he gives it as a gift. 
all of it. From the very house that you own, to the car that you own, the career that you might have, the children that you might have, it is all grace given to you by God. It is, it, we don't deserve any of it. And you're like, well, Ricky, you don't know how hard I've worked. You don't know all that I've done. Doesn't matter. It does not matter. It is still a very gift of the grace of God. The very fact that you can even go to work in the morning is a gift from God. It's this attitude of saying, Lord, I own nothing. You own it all. We, we hold everything that we have, including our most prized possessions, being our children or our spouses or our careers or our houses or whatever it is, we hold it in an open hand and say, God, you own it all. I own nothing. You give and you take away. Job said in chapter two, so we, should we only thank God when good comes and not when bad comes? Those are the very words of Job. So if all of this is true, why do we think we could ever earn God's love and acceptance? If it's all a gift of grace, how could we even approach God and say, God, here, here's a Lunchable. Here's a Lunchable. This is all I have to offer you. And God says, no, I've offered you a banquet. I've offered you a banquet. Put your Lunchable aside. I have, I have paid the price for you to eat. Now come eat with me. Look at Romans chapter 5. I'm going to try to get through these verses without crying because this sums it up well for us. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. But God, while we were still participating in sin, Christ came and died for the ungodly. If you listen to that language, do you see anything in there that you were participating in that was good? I don't, not for me. I was participating in sin, all the things that are disobedient to God, and still Christ comes and dies in my place. Christianity is the only one that says, I'll go for them. They don't want me, but I'll go for them. I'll give my place, I'll give my life in their place. Christianity is the only one that offers that. Now here's, here's the way I want to make this invitation this morning as we wrap up our time. I want to think about investments for just a moment. 
And I'm not going to tell you, well, you need to start tithing so you can make investments or anything like that. Here's, here's how I want to think about this this morning. Is that God does not make investments. And if he did make investments, his investments would not be smart investments. And here's, here's, here's so often where we go, especially as Christians, is that I have to do whatever I can to protect God's investment in me. Because if not, what's going to happen? He's going to come and remove that investment. That's, that's so unbiblical, church. God does not make investments. God comes and he condescends in the man, Jesus Christ, lives the life you and I could not live, dies the death we deserve to die on the cross, defeats death after three days, and ascends to the Father at the right hand where he is praying for us night and day. God does not make investments. And if he did, they would be terrible investments. I look at myself all the time in the mirror and think, God, what were you thinking? What were you thinking to save someone like me, to call me into ministry, to do what I'm doing, to plant a church, to preach, to love people, to shepherd people? What were you thinking? Because I look at myself and all I see often is a buffoon. And it's not that God was seeing, he was looking down and saying, well, I, I just see something in you. I see something special in you. But he looks down and he sees a dead person and he makes that dead person live. That's the truth of the gospel. That's how we combat retribution theology, saying, I didn't deserve any of this. God gave it to me of a sheer grace, not only everything that I have, but my salvation. Rest firmly in him. So my invitation to you this morning would be this. If you are not in Christ this morning, I'm going to be right in the back of the room. I would love to pray with you. There's no special prayer. I'd love to pray with you, confess that sin, put that sin to death, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as Savior this morning. And if you are in Christ, I'll pray with you as well. I'll counsel with you as well. But we're going to worship here in just a moment. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself, God, have I been trying to protect the investment you made in me? And my plea is with you as, as we worship is to put those thoughts to death. Say, God, you don't make investments, but you made a dead person live. Let's pray.